as Chad mentioned, for the next three weeks, we're going to be stepping into a series focused on out of the end of 1 Corinthians, on what God calls men to specifically. And uh, my good friend Kevin Colley is going to be here. I've known Kevin for well over a decade, but been co-workers officially uh, at Frontline for the last six months as he came on staff with our central team. He's a massive blessing to our church. He's been here before, but if you haven't get to get a chance to, to, to meet him, you will this morning. Uh, and he's going to be preaching to us. So here's what I'm going to ask you. Would we stand for the reading of God's Word? God's Word speaks to us in 1 Corinthians 16, verse 13 and 14. Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Let all you do be done in love. Well, good morning, everybody. It's good to be with you. Let me pray for us, and we'll dive right into what we've got in front of us this morning. So, Father, at this moment, I'm conscious that... Um, Apart from your movement in this room, words not only will be um, powerless, they'll be unhelpful. So would you move among us? Would you open our eyes? Would you make our hearts hospitable places for your word? Would you give all of us a curiosity within about the places where we're inclined to be miffed? And I ask above all that you would foster and grow love among the men and women of this church. Love for you and love for one another. That's, that's my prayer. God, would you come and work among us, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so in September of 2018, a young woman posted a video of herself online. And in this video, she is on a subway dumping what she claimed to be bottles of bleach into the laps of men sitting on the subway. And she posted this video, in her words, as an outrage and protest against the scourge of man-spreading. Now, at the risk of mansplaining, I'll tell you guys what manspreading is. We, do we know what manspreading is? Guys who take up too much room in a seat. And in the subway, she was tired of this. It's a blight on humanity. And so she posts this video of dumping bleach into men's laps and running away in protest. Well, as you can imagine, this got posted and reposted and tweeted and retweeted millions of times all over social media. How many of you have seen this video? A couple of you? Um, and like this happens in social media, stuff got crazy. You have um, aggressive feminists applauding this woman and saying what an amazing moment and victory this is for that woman in general and women across the globe. You have cultural conservatives in outrage saying that men should retaliate against women. Maybe we should retaliate against this woman specifically and all women in general. Stuff got wild. People um, posting hot takes, agitated responses, pouring out venom and judgment on other human beings that they'd never ever met. 
crazy, right? You're like, was that a Tuesday? Or it sounds like just the way we live now. But this was a significant event. Now let me tell you what was the craziest thing about this whole ordeal. The video was fake. It had been staged. There were multiple interviews with the men that were actors in the video. One man said, it's the easiest money I ever made. I came with three pairs of pants and left with one large paycheck. She wasn't dumping bleach into their lap. She was dumping water. And crazier still, it was staged by the Russian government as part of their disinformation campaign. Now, you, you think about Russian disinformation, and what they seek to do is they seek to increase tension, increase fighting, increase outrage within the West as an attempt to destabilize the West from the inside out. Here's how this department of the Kremlin operates. They believe that if they can stoke enough polarization, enough hostility, enough infighting within a nation that they can weaken that nation at the knees and make them less of a force to reckon with. Now, this is not a political rant at all. This has nothing to do with Russia. There's actually something way more serious and way more significant and way deeper at play, right? Because from the earliest pages of the Bible, we see that humanity has had an enemy far more dangerous and far more powerful than Russian disinformation. The, the devil who appears in Genesis chapter 3 and is given all sorts of dire names throughout the scriptures. I thought this week about all the names that Satan is given in the Bible. The accuser, the tempter, the father of lies, our adversary, the dragon, the great serpent. John in Revelation chapter 12 verse 9 calls him the deceiver of the whole world. And here's what I want us to think about and reckon with today. That this being, the deceiver of the whole world, the accuser of men and women has launched a disinformation campaign against all humanity. And what Satan operates in primarily is enmity. This growing hostility and hatred and rage that manifests itself in man's hatred against God, man's hatred against one another, nation's hatred against other nations, and specifically, as we're talking this morning, men's animosity between women and vice versa. Hey, brothers and sisters, we are living in a world that's at war. We're, we are daily encountering warfare that we can see, and we are daily encountering warfare that we can't see. The enmity that we're experiencing every moment of every day is born out of a conflict, a cosmic conflict that exists between the deceiver of the whole world and God himself. And because of that conflict exists between humanity and God. Paul says in Romans chapter 8 that the mindset on the flesh is hostile towards God. That's the kind of enmity we're talking about. This is a battle that rages between cosmic forces seen and unseen, 
between you and me, between you and God and me and God, and between us against us in all sorts of groups, but it's uniquely manifested against women against men. And, and just like there were Americans who were retweeting a video and spilling out vile venom based on a, a video that wasn't even real, so too in the church, we are constantly, constantly being shaped by ideologies that flow out of and are animated by this enmity. Like, let me just say it like this, and I want to say it sharply, but not as sharp as a way to poke you. I want to sharpen the focus of this as much as I can. All gender ideologies, any movement that seeks to flatten distinction, heighten animosity, ignore abuse, glamorize dysfunction, embellish and mock indifference, are actually demonically energized and inspired. I'm going to say that again because I think it's worth us hearing. All gender ideologies, any movement that seeks to flatten distinction, heighten animosity, ignore abuse, glamorize dysfunction, embellish and mock difference, is demonically energized and inspired. Any gender ideology actually exists because of enmity. It's the same enmity that we see enter the universe in Genesis chapter 3. And whether wittingly or not, it exists as a means of furthering enmity. Now, I say things like this not to be provocative, but just because I want to put all my cards on the table, okay? Feminism in any form or any wave cannot eradicate enmity from humanity. Ma any masculine ideology or machismo cannot eradicate enmity from humanity. And I don't say that to be shock jockey. I say that because we need to reckon with what is true. I, I had a good friend in Kansas City that used to regularly come to me and she would say, hey, you are blending together and conflating different waves of feminism that is like kind of hacky and disrespectful. And she had all the grounds in the world to say that because she was a professor and her PhD was in feminism. She, and she was right. But I was saying, hey, I'm not trying to nuance historical waves of feminism here. I'm simply saying that feminism or any anti-feminist or aggressive masculine ideology, any of those isms are born out of and further and advance enmity. They cannot heal the enmity because they're corrupted by it and driven by it. Now that's, that's weighty to put on the table. Um, and I, I, I'm not trying to be weird, but every contemporary secular gender movement, whether feminist or masculine in nature, every single movement is flowing out of this enmity. And here's what's crazy to say. Like, is built on misogyny and misandry. And you're like, man, he's, he came here to throw around big terms. The Chiefs are playing this afternoon. We've got big things to focus on. I don't need to be distracted. And your brother has an amen from the front. Mis mis misogyny is hatred of women. And misandry 
is hatred of men. And I had someone um, a few weeks ago pit feminism and misogyny against one another. I said, no, hey, here's what we don't understand. Here's how deep the problem goes. Feminism isn't the opposite of misogyny. It's actually fueled by it. And it's fueled by hatred of men as well. The same with any aggressively masculine or machismo movement, fueled by hatred of women and fueled by hatred of men because they are the product of this demonic scheme to unsettle humanity. And the reason why I bring all of this to the table this morning is I want you to hear from me as clearly as I can state that our only hope to be freed from enmity is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our only hope to be freed from enmity is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's only through the person and work of Jesus that men can truly be men, redeemed, strong, tender, holy, glorious as God has designed them. And it's only through the redempting work of the redeeming work of Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection, that women can be truly women bearing all the glory of their femininity, all the destiny that God has appointed them for as women, our hope is not in flattening distinctions between men and women or heightening animosity between them. Our hope is looking to God himself to redeem what's broken about us, to eradicate the enmity from us, and then to help us walk in the glory of our maleness and the glory of our femaleness so that we can do what he created us to do as men and women. Now, here's what I want us to do this morning. Chad's already mentioned this and Jeff mentioned this. We're going to take the next three weeks as a church to talk about biblical masculinity. And here's why. Like, we need to speak to contemporary issues in the life of the church. We just need to. And uh, the attack on men and the attempt to eradicate men culturally is pervasive and only seems to be generating steam. And we want to talk about men to men in the presence of women because I think it's important for your pastors to speak to gendered issues when the whole body's present. I think, women, it's important for you to hear your pastors speak to men as men. And men, it's important for you to be in the presence of women as your pastors speak to you as men. Because we could, like, go off to some cabin and do this on a men's retreat with beef jerky and venison jerky and assorted jerkies. But I think we would miss something of what's glorious and awkward about men receiving instruction from their pastors, from God's word, in the presence of women, and vice versa, women for you to sit and hear that. And our goal is, in the days to come, to do the same thing for women from this series as well. How can your pastors speak to you as women in the presence of brothers? And I'll just quickly tell you three reasons why we're doing this. Number one, men need women. Men need women. And when the Bible says it's not good for man to be alone, obviously in that context, God's talking about the context of marriage. But this goes way beyond the relationship about, of husband and wife. This is about friendship and mothers, and sisters, and spiritual mothers, and spiritual sisters. 
See, much of true masculinity is directed men towards using our strength to help women flourish in their strength. And if we don't know women and walk in the strength and the ministry of women, like exist around moms and sisters and friends, we actually lose something of the essence of what God's created us for, and our, our masculine essence is deficient. Ladies, this is the same, like men need women. We need your presence. We need your prayers. And we said this downtown, and it was jarring, but it's important. We need your presence. We need your prayers. We don't need your permission to pursue masculinity because God's, God's commanded us to do that. But man, your support and your strength and your delight in that and your affirmation of us saying, hey, what does God call us to be and how do we walk in that faithfully? That will add fuel to the fire that you cannot imagine. Men need women. Secondly, women need men. Ladies, I long for Frontline to heighten the culture, raise the waterline where we are lovingly and clearly rejecting the kind of sameness and interchangeability that is proffered to us on a daily basis of how men and women are supposed to relate. One scholar talks about moving towards this ideal of genderless constructs. Like we no longer need men and women anymore. You know, a woman needs a man like a fish needs a bicycle. We want to live in this genderless, constructed world where he says actually virtue is genderless, which contradicts the entirety of everything we know, not just from the scriptures, but how men and women function together. I want to see redeemed male strength bless the women in this body. And I want to see redeemed female strength grow because the men have the courage and the holiness to be men with you. Like, women, you, you need men as well. I mean, I have two daughters. I want to see them grow up in a church where men are called to be men and women are called to be women, and the dignity of both is honored, and we can walk in the sacredness and the joy of that together. That, that's why we're doing this. Here's the last reason why we're doing this. Number three, men are struggling. Men are struggling. The statistics are overwhelming. There's a focused effort in the West to eradicate masculinity completely. Listen, this is a secular political philosopher from Harvard. Listen to what Harvey Mansfield says in his book entitled Manliness. He says, today, the very word manliness seems quaint and obsolete. We're in the process of making the English language gender neutral. And manliness, the quality of one gender, or rather of one sex, seems to describe the essence of the enemy we are attacking, the evil we are eradicated, eradicating. Hey, we're told, these are just headlines I snagged from articles I've collected over the last couple of years. Some of them cover stories. We're told in Time Magazine that men are obsolete. We're told in Vice Magazine that all masculinity is toxic. There is no such thing as toxic masculinity, Vice contends, because masculinity itself is toxic. We're told in The Atlantic that the end of men has arrived. And we're told everywhere that the future is female. Now let me ask you a question. What happens to generations of men when they are told that by virtue of their gender, they are inherently wicked and toxic and the problem. 
what happens? Well, you have men check out. So abdication, addiction, all those things are on the rise. I read a book last year, a secular book, where the woman contends, hey, we've put men in a horrible spot. We've told them that they're worthless. We've told them that they're too competitive. We've told them that they are the problem. And now on the backside of that, we're damning them for living in their parents' basements and watching pornography and not having jobs. She's like, we, we put them in this place. We told them they can't do anything and for them to move is toxic. And now we, squirt, we scorn them for being in a place where we put them. Like, that, that's a real problem. You have men checking out. You have men rising up in hatred and animosity. Where do you think things like the growth of white supremacy and the Proud Boys and all these other odd movements are coming from? They're coming from men who have been told you're toxic for them to go, well, if that's all I can be, I might as well be the best and most amazing toxic human being the world has ever known. And it's happening in spades. And, and then on top of all this, I don't know if you realize this, but suicide is the biggest killer of men under the age of 45. And when we had this men's event with all our congregations together several weeks ago, one of our pastors named that and then asked the room of over 600 men, some of you were there, hey, how many of you have someone close to you, a close friend or family member that have killed themselves. And the number of hands that were raised broke my heart. Like men are struggling. And the hope for men is not to receive some ideology that's foisted upon us or receive another name that's thrown at us. The hope for men is to hear what God says to us and by his grace and through his spirit stand up in that. So what we're going to do is we're going to do that this week. We're just going to take these two imperatives from the end of 1 Corinthians 16. There's a handful of them, but I, I just want to take two of them with you this morning. If you look at 1 Corinthians 16, verse 13 and 14, Paul gives this handful of commands, which most scholars say he's, he's mimicking the way a Roman commander would speak to soldiers. This is um, military language. It's military form. And we're going to look this morning at be watchful, and we're going to look at stand firm in the faith. Now, when, when I spoke at our men's event several weeks ago, and you can get all this online at masculinevirtue.net, I, I described for us a portrait of biblical masculinity. I'm not going to do that this morning. I'm actually going to stand on that and presume that. So brothers, if you haven't heard that, you should listen to that. And ladies, sisters, if you haven't heard that, we would all be blessed if you listen to that as a, as a means of calling us up, affirming what God's done, to have the loving voice to say, hey, that's not what God's made you to be. That I, I, think, I think the way we could see shame eradicated in the hearts of men throughout this city is to have women lovingly look at them and say, God's made you for more than that. This isn't that. This is just taking these two imperatives, be watchful and stand firm in the faith. And I want to just like unpack these quickly for you. Be watchful. Now the Puritans were obsessed with this word. The Puritans spent a lot of time and energy reflecting on what 
the biblical authors meant when they said be watchful. It's a simple word. I mean, it's basically like the command to wake up, but it's used for something beyond sleep. And here's a definition I have for you from John Owen, Puritan pastor, who says this, watchfulness is a universal carefulness and diligence, exercising itself in and by all ways and means prescribed by God. Over our hearts and ways, the baits and methods of Satan, the occasions and advantages of sin in the world, that we might not be entangled. That's what watchfulness is, is using everything we have, exercising every faculty of our being, observing everything around us so that we might live as God intended us to live and resist temptation to give in to the enmity that's pervasive throughout the world. That's what watchfulness is. Now, I want to talk about watchfulness as an identity, watchfulness as a posture, and watchfulness as a practice. And I realize time's limited, and maybe you hear kids um, does the volume rise as a message to the preacher that it's time to wind things down? Or maybe Puckett will just come up here and shepherds crook me. But let's talk about watchfulness as an identity, watchfulness as a posture, and watchfulness as a practice. All of them are important. The first man, Adam, was created to be watchman. Look in your Bibles in Genesis chapter 2, if you have them, or maybe we'll put it on the screen for you. I'm not sure. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, this is what God's word says to us. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. It's important to realize that prior to sin entering the world, before the fall, men had a job. There were things to do vocationally before we rebelled against God. But, but what's critical to note here, at least for our time this morning, is this language of working and keeping is about cultivation and protection. Adam didn't just have animals to name. He had things to cultivate. He had things to advance. And he was appointed. This language of keeping is a language of guarding, protecting, defending, functioning as a sentinel, a keeper. So we see that Adam was placed in the garden, not just as its primary cultivator, but as his primary watchman. Hey, men, let's just stop and ask, what does it mean that God created man and commissioned him as a cultivator and as a watchman? What is it about men that God has designed to keep, to guard, to look out, to protect, to be able to say to others, hey, you can relax, I've got you. I've got this. And not in a sense of grabbing control, but in a sense of looking out and being attentive. And as this watchman is appointed, we see almost immediately following, a sinister character enters the scene. Look at Genesis chapter 3 with me. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord had made. He said to the woman, did God really say did God really tell you that you should not eat of any tree in the garden? She's lying. Of course God didn't say that. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, of this one, you know, this one tree you shouldn't eat. The serpent said to the woman, hey, God's lying to you. God's holding out on you. 
He's trying to keep something from you. And then we see as the narrative unfolds that Eve is deceived. She buys the lie of the enemy. She believes that God doesn't have her best interests in mind. She believes that God is holding out on her. And she takes the fruit from the one tree that had been forbidden to her, and she eats it. And then look in verse 6, the end of verse 6. She took of its fruit and ate it. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her. She gave to her husband who was with her. Now, the New Testament's going to unpack and say, Eve was deceived, but Adam's sin was of, a, was of a totally different kind. Adam wasn't deceived. Adam was indifferent. He was detached. So here you have the man commissioned to be the watchman in the garden, when what he should have done is he should have spoken to his wife, not to domineer over her, not to bully her, not to order her around, but to say, Eve, do not listen to that. He is, he's questioning the very goodness of God. He's questioning the very character of God. He should have washed his wife with the word of God and said, hey, let me remind you what God said to us. He's trustworthy. Everything he told us is an opportunity to see him be good for us. Do not believe this. He should have been the watchman. He just stood by. What a, what a grotesque scene that this man just is on his phone letting his wife throw her life away, literally. And since that moment, brothers and sisters, since that moment, we've seen enmity. From that moment, a world at war with the world, the flesh, and the devil, the scriptures say. From that moment, and by the way, it's not just that like they cheated us and we would have done better. Men, you would have done the same thing in that place. You would have done the same thing. And in fact, you were with Adam when he sinned. So we talk about Adam's sin is by nature and by choice. You have it in your DNA, and would you have been in the same situation which you have been? You've abdicated your role as watchman too. Now, you look in the curse. I'm fast-forwarding a lot, right? You look in the curse, and in Genesis 3, 14, and 15, when God curses the serpent, in verse 15, there's this promise embedded. People call it the proto-gospel. Wait a minute, there's like gospel words hidden in a curse? Because God says to the, the accuser of the brethren, the deceiver, the dragon, the serpent, he says, hey, from the offspring of this woman will be your demise. From the offspring of this woman will be the one that will crush your head. What God says in this moment is, even though the first man failed in his role as the watchman, there will come from the seed of this woman one who will be faithful as a watchman. Which if we follow the flow of the Old Testament, men are failing as watchmen all the time. It's not just a story of one failed watchman. Adam fails as a watchman. Noah fails as a watchman. Abraham fails as a watchman. All the patriarchs fail as a watchman. Israel collectively fails as a watchman. And then one comes, a truer and better Adam, a faithful watchman born without sin 
who resists temptation and rejects the passivity of the flesh. We see a truer and better Adam come who will bring the kingdom of the holy and righteous God instead of submitting and abdicating to the kingdom of the unrighteous enemy. He'll do battle with the serpent and crush his head. Brothers and sisters, our hope as men is found in Jesus, the truer, the better watchman. Jesus did for humanity everything that Adam and you and me have failed to do. So it's not as if we go, well, God made us as, as watchmen. Looks like we screwed that up. So what's next? It's like, no, no, no. God made us as watchmen and actually made a way so that we could be redeemed in what we've broken and restored and renewed in what we violated so that in Jesus, men, we could actually stand up and live out our calling as protectors, as guardians, not as bullies, not as mall cops over women, but as actually men who understand the purpose of God's design in the world and labor in humility to keep that, to watch over that, to remind women and men both, hey, this is what God's created us for. We will not let that come in from outside. And so if we understand how Jesus enables us to live into our identity as watchmen, then we can understand watchfulness as a posture and watchfulness as a practice. Now think about watchfulness as a posture. And I I wanted to name this because the primary way Paul and most of the authors of the New Testament use the word watchful is about a posture. We, we don't see them using this word, be watchful, to link this idea of Adam as failed watchman and Jesus as faithful watchman, though that's true. But throughout the New Testament, and especially in Paul's writings, he's telling us all the time, hey, Jesus is coming back. Jesus is coming back. Therefore, be watchful. Therefore, be on the alert. Be vigilant. It's kind of like kids waiting for dad to come home. Right? It's like standing at the door or my kids when my parents are coming over. When are Mimi and Doc going to get here? It's like, hey, do you guys want to play a game? No, I actually want to stand at the door and wait for them to arrive. That's, that's the language of vigilance and focus that gives us as watchfulness as a posture. And, and we see watchfulness used with regarding to fighting the satanic enemy in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. You can look at that later on your own if you want. We see the scriptures talk about being watchful in resistance to corrosive thoughts and influences. Acts chapter 20, verses 31. Watchfulness as a posture is the combination of expectation, commitment to theological truth, moral vigilance, and focused prayer. I mean, the images that we're given in the New Testament for our lives as Christians is pilgrims, athletes, and soldiers. In each one of those, vigilance is required. My sixth grader is playing basketball, and and it's not like she's played basketball her whole life, and now she's on a formal team, has never played basketball ever, and now she's on a team. She's doing great, but I'm always telling her, hey, get your head in the game. Where's the ball? 
Are you on offense or defense? Where are we moving? And I'm actually training her to position her body in such a way where she's orienting everything about herself around the game. That's what it means to be watchful as a posture. Think about now watchfulness as a practice. If God has created us men to be watchmen, and God calls us, men and women alike, but I'm speaking specifically to men, if God calls us as men to be watchful with a posture of watchfulness, can you think about things that you could do to enhance the practice of watching? And let me tell you this, the Puritans talked about the practice of watching in terms of foregoing sleep the same way you forego food when you fast. The Puritans were like, you know, you, you might say they were zealots and crazy, but I might contend to you that we need more of their spirit in this flaccid moment in time where everything is weak and spongy. The Puritans at least knew what they stood for and knew what they were giving their lives to. But you see, the Puritans talk about staying up. Watching, here's a Puritan definition, literally taken is an affection of the body, a voluntary, voluntary denying of our body's sleep that we may spend either the whole or part of the night in pious exercises. As fasting is temporary abstinence from food, so watching is temporary abstinence from sleep. Now don't, don't go to what Paul is not saying or I'm not saying. I'm not saying that it's sinful to get eight hours of sleep. And by the way, one of the things I say to people most often is like, maybe the holiest thing you could do is take a nap. Because I think we are so overachieving in our disposition and we think one more thing, we think life depends on us and so if we just sleep less and work harder, we'll accomplish our goals. That's not what I'm talking about. If that's you, you should take a nap. You should take a nap. You should trust God and take a nap. But men, I would also love to see what might happen on the western side of the city if men were so courageous as to say, I'm actually taking three hours in the middle of the night tonight to deprive myself of sleep and pray for families in our church, pray for masculine virtue and courage to raise up in the men in our body. Like, what would it look like if we denied ourselves sleep for the purpose of attentiveness and vigilance and prayer? What would the intercessory spirit of men look like if we said, I'm going to stand confident in my identity as a redeemed watchman in Jesus. I'm going to have a posture of vigilance all the time. And as I labor to grow in holiness and righteousness, I'm actually going to occasionally deprive myself of sleep for the purpose of prayer. Think about, hey men, think about the ways in which our strengths, misapplied, misdirected, unredeemed, get crooked. What if you took the practice of watchfulness to specifically intercede for male sin in this church and ask God to cultivate male righteousness in this church? So much more I want to say here, but I don't want to miss Paul's second imperative to stand firm in the faith. I'm going to be way quicker here than I was on the first one. 
He says, stand, be, be watchful, stand firm in the faith. He's talking first and foremost about the gospel of Jesus handed down from the apostles and prophets. And he says in chapter 15, verse 1 of 1 Corinthians, just before, he says, hey, I want to remind you of this gospel that I preached to you and the gospel in which you stand. And so now he's saying, stand firm. Hey, men, in a day and age where corrupt theology is peddled so fast you can't even take it all in. The word of God to you is stand firm in the faith. And the way you stand firm in the faith is you ground yourself in the faith. You root yourself in the faith. You study God's word. You understand God's word as a means by which you eat, as a means by which you protect yourself from the outside, as a means by which you strengthen yourself. Everything you need, God's word has for you. And the word of the Lord to men Stand firm in the faith. Like, brothers, I don't know about where you came from, if you were raised in the church, if you're new to the church or whatever, but I know that like in my day, reading the Bible was just viewed as like the things moms do. Moms bake cookies and moms wipe noses and moms read the Bible. Hey, we could decide right now in our moment, like standing firm in the faith, Studying the scriptures and weeping over the pages of our Bible is a masculine thing. Paul sure seemed to think that it was. Paul doesn't seem embarrassed to exhort you and me to do it. Stand firm in the gospel. Stand firm in reality. Let me ask you a question. What is required in this moment in time to actually hold fast to a biblical worldview? It, it, it requires something more than just knowing Bible verses, but actually saying, wait a minute, how does this book not just give me verses to like throw at things as if they're verse pearls, but how does this, how does this give me a world in which to build my life on, a way in which to organize my thinking, to organize my purposes, to structure the way in which I make meaning in the world? That's what it means to stand firm in a biblical worldview. Stand firm in humility. Earlier in 1 Corinthians in chapter 10, he says, hey, if you think you're standing firm, be careful lest you fall. What if standing firm in the faith required us to hold on to a humility that understands um, our proclivity to sin, our tendency to give in to temptation, and we ask God for strength there? So many more things I want to say. Here's, here's the last thing I want to say, and then we'll close and go to communion. Men, please hear this. And women, when I get a chance to say this to you specifically, I mean, this applies to all of us now, but I want to say this specifically to men. Paul says in Romans 14, it's one of my favorite chapters in the Bible, by the way, because he, he does this work of like, hey, don't stand in judgment over somebody else because they're not going to stand before you on judgment day. And don't sweat it when other people stand over you in judgment because you're not going to stand before them on judgment day. And he says this in Romans 14, 4. God is able to make you stand. The way you're going to stand firm, the only way you're going to stand firm, is God will make you stand firm. The call to be watchful and stand firm in the faith, men, is not some kind of like harumph to deeper masculine energy and like this is about closing in on yourself, going solitary, and just being tougher. The word of the Lord to you is, as God commands you to stand firm in the faith, he also promises you he will cause you to stand. 
The confidence you have is that God will make you stand. The confidence you have as men is when God calls you to be watchful, he himself has come into our world and stood as a faithful watchman so that you don't have to have the world hanging on your shoulders. You can admit your brokenness, admit your frailty, confess your sinful fallenness, and walk in the way God has called you to walk and trust that he makes you clean when you fail. That's, that's the essence, by the way, brothers, of how we're watchful and how we stand firm in the faith. Do you run to Jesus when you fail, or do you run away from him? What is it about us that when we fail, we run to the very thing that's caused the shame, that's caused the brokenness, that's caused the dysfunction, as if the thing that got us in a jam is going to get us out? The way you're watchful and the way you stand firm in the faith is run to Jesus when you fail. And then you can, as a man who sinned against his wife, you can confess your sins to God and then look your wife in the eyes as one who's been forgiven and say, hey, I have failed. I've sinned against you. I sinned against God and I sinned against you. And the, the way you're going to uphold masculine character to your wife or your daughters or any other human being around you is not by just putting on a good front and acting as if. It's like, oh, no, hey, my only hope is that God will make me stand. My hope is in Jesus as my watchman. And his accomplishment on my behalf frees me to actually step into the role he's made me for and pursue being a watchman in my day and age and find grace when I fail as a watchman, just like every other man born of woman has. And here's the way I want us to move to communion. In Ephesians chapter 2, man, Paul, Paul's prayer is so intense there. But twice in verse 14 and in verse 15, Paul talks about how God has removed the enmity from us. He uses, it's translated in the ESV, hostility, but it's, it's the same word, enmity. That thing in us that makes us hostile to God, that thing in us that makes us hostile to one another, that thing in us that drives men and women apart, not just in normal ways, but in abnormal ways, that thing God says, Jesus took upon himself so that you don't have to be plagued by it. And that thing, God says, Jesus killed. He killed the hostility so that you and I don't have to be plagued by it. Brothers, as we hear these words from Paul about our masculinity, our only hope is, the, is in the one who took the enmity upon himself and killed it. And if you believe that, whether you're male or female today, you're a Christian. If you look to Jesus and believe that he took upon himself what was broken and flawed and rebellious about you, not just flawed, rebellious about you, he took it upon himself and bore the penalty for it so you don't have to bear the penalty for it. And then he actually killed it. He defeated sin, Satan, and death and rose again victorious over the grave so that we can have a real day that we're looking to when all the enmity is gone. Would you come and celebrate that with me this morning? That on the cross, when Jesus' body was broken, 
in the breaking of his flesh, he was taking upon himself the enmity that divides our world. And when his blood was poured out, that he offered his disciples at the last meal saying, eat this bread, this is my body. Drink this wine, this represents my blood. That as his blood was poured out, he was taking the enmity upon himself and killing enmity so you and I can be free forever. If you believe that, you're a Christian. And I invite you not just to come and eat as if this is a hollow ritual, but come again and give the enmity that you carry to Jesus. It's why he came. Repent of your sins, delight in your forgiveness, and glory in the one who is the enmity-killing, death-killing God. If you're not a follower of Jesus, this meal isn't for you. This is a faith meal. There's nothing magic about it, so I ask you not to eat it. Instead, my prayer for you would be that you would take Jesus, not take communion. And we'll have prayers on the screen for you that can help you talk to God, maybe for the first time in your life. And I'd love to pray with you or talk with you after the service. You're like, man, I hear this word and I want to take hold of Jesus. You can do that by faith today. You don't have to go home and change anything, throw anything away, fix anything. God can do that for you now. We'd love to pray with you about that. But right now, sit in your seats and let other people celebrate this faith meal. Do this together. This is an opportunity for us to look men and women in the eyes and say, Jesus makes us right between one another. So, Father, now would you come and minister to us by your Spirit as we celebrate the life of your Son, the death of your Son, and the resurrection of your Son. I pray all these things in his name. Amen.